0: One, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi, guys. I'm Amy Wright. Thanks for listening to the Insights Podcast by Diddy TV, where we offer behind-the-scenes interviews with musicians, producers, engineers, and other various and vital contributors to the world of music. Today I talk one-on-one with Bob Mayer, recent recipient of the Grammy Award for Best Album Notes, which Mayer earned for his work on Dead Man's Pop, a box set by the notorious and iconic Midwestern rock band, The Replacements. Bob Mayer is also a New York Times best-selling author for his book Trouble Boys, the true story of The Replacements. While Mayer's career is most certainly tied to The Replacements, He's done a lot of other outstanding work some of which we'll dig into this hour. So kick back and listen in as we welcome the great Bob Mayer. Bob, welcome to Diddy TV. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me.
0: Listen, it's super exciting for us to have an author in our studio. We we interview a lot of artists, we interview a lot of engineers and right. other folks associated with music, but uh, you you might be one of the first ar- authors and journalists, uh, and music critic, and all those things. Um, so you're sort of an artist. You're sort of a musician, right?
1: <laughs> well, my wife is the actual musician in the family, so I can't lay claim to that. So I'll just stick with the part, <laughs> and uh, and I'll say I'm, I'm, I write about artists, but I, w- I would never claim to be one quite yet. So,
0: <laughs> so where did you grow up? Were you on
1: the West Coast or? Yeah, I mostly grew up on the West Coast, uh, Los Angeles till I was about 14. And then we moved to Arizona, to Tucson, where I went to high school and college. Got my start uh, professionally working at Alternative Weekly in Phoenix and then in Seattle. Eventually kind of made the leap to the West Coast where I worked in Chicago for a few years at a paper there. And then about 15 years ago. Uh, the opportunity came to come down to Memphis and uh, be the uh, music critic for the Daily Paper, the Commercial Appeal. And Obviously, Memphis being not just generally, but for me personally, a real beacon as far as a music town and so many of the artists and things I love having come out of there. It was a really uh, amazing opportunity. And, and so, yeah, so I've been basically the music critic at, at the uh, Daily Paper, which is the Gannett USA Today owned newspaper in Memphis since uh, 2006.
0: Well, and you're also a freelance writer for Rolling Stone and Mojo and others.
1: Yeah, I've been I've been doing kind of parallel over the years, doing m- magazine, and I guess this was even before everything had gone online. I've been doing it long enough, but um, yeah, I've written for Rolling Stone, for Billboard. I've uh, been a longtime correspondent for for Mojo, which is kind of the leading uh, music magazine in Europe, based out of the UK, and uh, that's some really. You know, interesting opportunities uh, working with those kinds of publications, too, in terms of who I get to interview, where I get to go. So it's all been I always say I haven't uh, so far after 23 years uh, as a kind of mostly full time music critic, I haven't had to really work a day yet. So.
0: So when you were growing up, did you play an instrument at all or, or not? I, I tried and failed at
1: playing various instruments. I, uh, I played violin. Well, I thought I played violin, my violin, third grade violin teacher would probably vehemently disagree with that, uh, played a little harmonica, you know, can noodle around on the guitar, but there was just some sort of disconnect between my uh, sort of uh, passion and love for music and what was going on in my head and what I could sort of express with my hands. So, uh, rather than sort of abandon music, which I, you know, was always something I'd, I'd, I'd love growing up even as an 8, 9, 10-year-old little kid, uh, I thought, well, you know, I'll start writing about it. Although that came a little bit later, I thought I might be a sports writer or a broadcaster or an advertising or something, but uh, eventually came back around to, really, it's all I've done professionally. i worked for three months for a, uh, for a magazine about the Supply industry, so purchasing supply industry, and uh, for about eight months, I worked for a uh, as an entertainment reporter for a national radio network. But pretty quickly, within the first year of kind of getting out of college and, and working, I landed a job as a uh, music editor for what was then a very thriving alternative weekly chain in Phoenix, the New Times, which you know ended up merging with Village Voice and all that stuff. And so, really, with the exception of about sort of six months here and there, once or twice in the last twenty three years, I've been. Writing on deadline about music, one way or the other, for uh, since nineteen ninety nine.
0: Did you play sports in in high school?
1: I played a little basketball, but you know I I won't stand up, but you can see how short I am. But uh, but uh, yeah, as, you're taller
0: uh, than I am. Let me just say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I mean I was I was in journalism. Actually, it's funny I, I was involved in a little bit of sports, but then more in journalism the last year or two of high school. But, you know, never and even into college, never sort of thought or assumed that it could be something that was a career. I don't know why. I think, uh, you know, like a lot of people, um, you sort of almost shy away from the things that come too easy or too naturally because you don't think it's supposed to be, you know, school is supposed to be hard. Work is supposed to be hard. But uh, I was fortunate enough fairly early to realize that I could make, you know, the thing that was my passion and, and my hobby and my interest uh, also kind of make a living at it. And so that's what I've been doing.
0: Did you go to college and study journalism or creative Uh, writing or something? Sort of adjacent to that.
1: I was a communications major and uh, also kind of studied media arts, which was, uh, you know, uh, at the University of Arizona, which was sort of a, uh, it was basically mass communication, essentially. I I didn't formally take uh, journalism, although there were some elements of journalism in both those programs. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I never, again, I never, I don't know why. I never thought, because I was always, I always wrote, and I, I always was a, pretty decent writer. And, you know, I, well, let's just say my math and science skills were terrible. So in comparison, it seemed like I was a pretty good writer even from, from, from childhood. So it was, it was the thing that was always the closest to me and and what I probably should have been doing and directed my career towards. But, you know, like a lot of people who, who in college, you know, you don't, it's one of those things you probably shouldn't pick your, your major until you, after you graduate, cause then you know what you should study. Um, so for me, it was a little bit of just, um, you know, kind of f- shying away from the thing that I really should have been focused on, and and eventually I came to it in terms of journalism.
0: So, what was your first big rock concert that you ever went to? Hmm. You remember?
1: I saw. Well, I there's there's a difference between the first concert I saw, which was actually uh, at Knott's Berry Farm in 1980. One, uh, there was uh, the at the time Dukes of Hazard was a very popular show, uh, which is a bit impolitic now. But uh, it, it, and Tom Wopat, who was one of the stars of the show, was they had the General Lee on display, and Tom Wopat was sort of performing a concert. I think he had a sort of brief career as a country musician, uh, or maybe not so brief. And uh, so that <laughs> was the actual first concert I saw. I was probably six or seven, uh, but we were just there at the amusement park. The first real show I would have seen actually was probably about 84. I saw Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. uh, An older friend of mine, family friend, uh, took me to a show uh, in Los Angeles. And it was actually one of the shows that was recorded for his live album, Pack Up the Plantation. So pretty good first concert in terms of seeing Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers kind of at their peak in the mid 80s.
0: My first was Cheap Trick.
1: Oh, that's great. Great. Yeah, that's funny. My. My first, uh, I was lucky when it, we were growing up for a time when we lived in Southern California. We lived in Santa Barbara for a bit. And it was really the heyday of, uh, you know, Def Leppard and Van Halen. Not that there's anything wrong with either of those groups. But uh, my neighbor, who was a few years older than me, a guy I kind of uh, worked, looked up to, it just so happened he was a massive, massive Cheap Trick fan. So I kind of, that was the first record I bought was a Cheap Trick record, Next Position, Please, which came out on my, when I was seven or eight. And so, yeah, so Cheap Trick is very close to my heart.
0: I'm actually surprised when I look back that my parents allowed me to start going to these concerts when I was 12. And uh, so they were pretty progressive for that time. They allowed me to go see live music and I was hooked. When were you really hooked on live music? Uh, 15, 16,
1: when we moved to Arizona, to Tucson. um, uh, It was kind of, uh, Tucson's sort of a mid-sized city, mid-sized market, but they would get a lot of really great country shows. And at that point, you know, you could still see George Jones, you could still see Conway Twitty. I developed a passion for country, really probably coming backwards through someone like Dwight Yoakam, who was, you know, really kind of popping off at that time in the, in the mid mid to late eighties. And and also someone who had kind of been in the weird kind of LA roots and even punk uh, sort of era. So, um, I kind of discovered him and through his music and the covers he was doing, kind of worked my way back to a lot of country stuff and got an interest there. And then when I was just kind of hitting high school or, you know, of of age to drive and be able to go shows and do things independently, I was seeing a lot of country shows, uh, in, in Tucson at that time, Earl Haggard, George Jones, Conway Twitty, uh, who else, uh, you know, really kind of all the greats and legends, Johnny Cash, people who were still around and still performing at that point. So I was very lucky that I was kind of into that, uh, you know, into going to seeing shows when you could really still see some of those legends.
0: Truly, well, so you get out of college and you get a job in, in Phoenix as a music critic. Was that lucky, or did you apply for the job of music critic?
1: It, it was sort of lucky. I was working in radio at that point, and um, when I was a young, when I was younger, sort of just out of high school, I would go up to Phoenix. At that point, Tempe, which was the college town in Phoenix, was kind of really. Popping off in terms of the music scene. There was a lot of bands that were being signed. It was kind of seen briefly as the next Seattle in the wake of Grunge. There were some groups that were successful, like the Gin Blossoms and other bands that got signed like Dead Hot Workshop, et cetera. The Gin Blossoms originally, uh, and this relates in a weird way to my kind of career writing about and working with the replacements. The Gin Blossoms originally, you know, now everybody thinks of them as kind of 90s pop band, but they were originally modeled sort of on the replacements um, and founded by a guy named Doug Hopkins who recorded their first album with them and was the main songwriter and they actually um recorded it in memphis at art with uh, the late john hampton which was a kind of multi-platinum breakthrough for them in 1992 their album new miserable experience but doug who was the band co-founder and chief songwriter he was fired you know he had some alcohol problems and ultimately ended up committing suicide and i had met him as a young man sort of underage being at shows and 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 drinking i think the statute of limitations has, has run out on that by now but um And I was sort of, he was a, you know, a local legend, a really larger than life character, and sort of his life ended very suddenly and prematurely and kind of tragically. So. Um, I had come to know some people who were friends with him and in the scene in Tempe when I moved up there and I started working in radio. And his the five-year anniversary of his death in 1998 was coming up. And, and I think no one had really written about him because of the kind of circumstances of his death. and People were still hurt and so sort of shook by his passing. And I just, as, as someone who was a fan and who sort of only knew him casually, I thought, well, somebody should write a story about this guy and explore his music. And a lot of stuff at that point was unreleased, still is unreleased. And so I took it upon... Myself, I pitched the local weekly, which you know I I had very little. I'd maybe done one or two stories for a couple of little fanzines. So I really wasn't a a writer per se or have any clips to show. But this guy, Gilbert Garcia, who was the music editor at the Phoenix New Times, took a chance on me. I said, Hey, I have an idea for this story, fifth anniversary of Doug's death, I'd like to do something. And I was able to kind of talk to uh the people who knew him, who grew up with him, his family, his friends, and it was published you know, on that five year anniversary and caused a bit of a stir because, you know, here was a guy nobody heard of me, never really had any experience writing, but managed to land and put together a pretty interesting uh, story about this guy who was a local legend. And um, that really was the, was the, and I only thought I was going to, I thought, I just want to do this one story for my own interest, for my own kind of, Sort of investigation of 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 what I wanted to know about him, and I never really had any real thoughts of, of pursuing a career. Although maybe in the back of my mind, and that story basically landed me the job as music editor of the of the New Times in Phoenix which at that point was a massive company. I mean, we think about all weeklies now and they're sort of, you know, the size of newsletters, it was like 150 to 180 page uh, weekly every, every, every Thursday, every Wednesday that came out. So it was a pretty heady thing for me at 23, 24 to get that job and to be in what I thought then was my dream job. I'd never leave, you know, and have it for the rest of my life. But um, that was kind of the starting point. So I kind of, I don't want to say I lucked into it or it was an accidental career, but, um, I think it was a little bit of fate, a little bit of destiny to for me to write that story and for it to land me my job and kind of get really, you know, what has been now uh, my whole life <laughs> rolling as far as being a writer and and being in the music business.
0: Did you wake up and say, who, who gave me the right to criticize other people's yeah. music? Well,
1: you know, that's the part uh, for me that, you know, I've done it. I've, I've written reviews. It's part and parcel of what I've always done. Um And I try and and I, you know, I've I've adjusted that in a sense based on, you know, when I started out, I was working for alt weeklies. It was always kind of, you know, tongue in cheek, a little trying to skewer people, had a certain aesthetic sense and sensibility. Um, and over time, you know, I've written for different kinds of magazines, different kinds of publications all over the world, and you know, been writing for a daily paper for 15 years. And so my view of that has changed truth be told, it's always been kind of the least favorite part of my job is doing straight reviews or doing criticism. I guess I'm, as much as I'm interested in the art, I'm more interested in the artists and the people and the stories. So I've always kind of considered myself more of a uh, feature writer who does criticism, um, and 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 obviously in doing working in a daily paper, I've had to kind of really hone my my chops as a as a news writer too and an investigative reporter as well. So it's all been good. You know, these kind of different experiences I've had have, have given me different and new perspectives on what it is you know a, a music writer, a music critic, or a reporter does. But um, but yeah, I mean, for me, I think I've always been less interested in the idea of criticizing art, even though that's a very important part, and it can be just as artistic and important to the process as, you know, the people making the art, the really great critics sort of transcend the that box. Uh, but for me, I've always been more interested in the stories behind the music, the stories behind the songs, and the people behind the songs, ultimately.
0: I was wondering if it's hard to write about something that you don't really like. You know, we all have music we love and music we don't <laughs> no. love.
1: Well, I think that, that, yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I think that uh, being at the, at the Commercial Appeal has kind of really taught me that in, in, in terms of the reviews, specifically like, say, concert reviews, where you're going to see a performance, a production, uh, an event, really, and you can't, I think, bring your sort of musical biases or prejudices or opinions to that because you know obviously if you don't like Eric Clapton or you don't like whatever it is you might not like his show or if you're not a particularly big fan of say you know whatever touring country artist. but what I've tried to do with those is really judge it from the from the perspective of uh, entertainment value of execution of you know did they sing well was the production good was it interesting did it hold your thing so I'm not sort of coming at it as somebody who's has a sort of jaundiced opinion about the music necessarily, but coming more from a pure performance perspective, did they put on a good show? And I think uh, you know, and and I found myself surprised at what entertains me and what holds my interest and what I enjoy. Sometimes the best shows that I have seen and written about and praised are by the artists that I have no particular feeling towards, or might even be disinterested or actually dislike. You know, so that's almost kind of a weirdly rewarding or uh, uh, an interesting experience in and of itself. You know, when you kind of just sort of view the the experience of a performance or a concert in its own kind of prism or in its own vacuum, and sort of just enjoy it on those terms.
0: So, when you undertook Trouble Boys, was was that a natural outgrowth of everything you've been doing, or was it a big undertaking?
1: It became a bigger undertaking than I would have real than I thought at the beginning. You know, I always joke that uh, when I got the contract to write the book, I told my editor it would take two years. You know, a year to research and 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 get, get going at a year to write. And of course it took about seven. So it's about three times longer than I predicted. But part of that was, you know, I made a lot of, did a lot of things that took longer because I was a first time author just learning about the process, the logistics of interviews, transcribing interviews, you know, kind of synthesizing research and so forth. So some of that it, it took longer than normal because it was, you know, you're making a lot of the rookie mistakes and some of it was the story really sort of, um, just kept like a thread. It just kept coming uh, apart and uh, and, uh, revealing itself to me. And it was just like the thread thread that never stopped. Um, So for me, like, again, it was almost like the story I did that kind of got me my job. It was, I felt compelled to know more about this band that I had always loved the replacements who had been written about quite a bit. They weren't some obscure band. they never became superstars, but they certainly weren't uh, unknown. And yet, despite all the coverage that I had read of them and all the things I knew about them, there was still something missing in my, you know, I felt like there's a hole in this story. There's something more to this. And so it was really just a kind of personal curiosity that led me to do the book. And then, of course, seven years later, (laughs) it turned into into this kind of epic saga and journey to, to get to the heart of not just what that band was about, but what it means to be in a band and what it means to sort of make a career in music where you really kind of come from nothing and have nothing and music is your only option. Uh, which is what it was for those guys. Um, So, yeah, it was like a lot of things in life. You start out thinking it's one thing and and it turned into something completely different. But um, fortunately, uh, I was lucky that I have a, a continuing passion and interest in the band. And so, you know, even now, five years after the book was published and 12 years after I started the project, I'm still working on related projects, box sets and so forth with them. And I still find them endlessly fascinating. So I was lucky that if i was going to devote myself to a, a subject or a band it happened to be one that you know could hold my attention for and fascination for this long did you know them before you wrote the book <laughs> I, I sort of ha- was acquainted with them just in the business of kind of doing being a j- music journalist. I had interviewed Paul Westerberg, the lead singer and songwriter and Tommy Stinson, the bass player, in their various you know post-replacements projects or solo projects. And I knew some of the people that were involved with the band professionally, some of their, their old a and guy at Warner Brothers, their longtime manager and, and, and uh, co-founder of their original label, Twin Tone, Peter Jesperson. Um, so I was kind of acquainted with them um, in 2003 I did the I'd interviewed Westerberg a couple times. So in 2004, I got a magazine assignment to go out to Minneapolis and interview him in person for the first time. And we kind of hit it off. He was at an interesting point in his career and life. Uh, He was a new father, had just lost his own father, and you know, despite his reputation as being you know rebellious and difficult and hard to get to, um, that day we had the conversation. He was very open and very uh, vulnerable, I guess, and we connected on a certain level. And so I thought for the first time, well, you know. Despite what everyone thinks that this is like an impenetrable band and an impenetrable person to try and write a book about, um, I thought there was something there that that we could work with, uh, that I could work with, and, and and kind of get to the heart of this this story that of this band that had fascinated me. And so that started a, a process in it itself about a year or two of courting the band, talking to them, their representatives, meeting with them, and saying, hey, you know, I want to do this, but I want to do this right. And I, I felt like the only way to do it right was to have them on board and invested, at least in terms of. You know, their honesty, their time and their ability to, you know, give me what I needed in terms of researching the story and uh, through a lot of ups and downs, I got that. And, you know, kind of that was the start of what ended up becoming, you know, a five, six year uh, process to, to research and write the book. So. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was one of those things where I knew them, but I didn't you know, I was I was in there sort of, you know, I knew them from a distance, but I obviously would come to know them a lot more over the over the ensuing years.
0: Well, the replacements have notoriously had highs and lows, and I'm sure you had to cover all of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and is it, is it hard to tell the truth? You get to know somebody, now they're sort of friends. And is it hard to tell those tough parts of the story? Well,
1: well, I was lucky in that. And, and some of that I kind of, because I knew that there was probably, you know, certain difficult elements to the story and, 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 and things that were going to be maybe uncomfortable for the band, for their family or whatever. And if I was going to do it right, um, I was fortunate that on the front end, in my discussions with the band and particularly with Paul, uh, that they were okay with that. You know, he, in fact, said to me in one of our, one of our first conversations uh as we were getting the book started he said you know if you do this and do it right there's only only one way and you have to tell the truth uh and that truth may not always make us look good or or be super flattering but you know don't bother doing this essentially if you're going to pull any punches which i didn't and you know uh as I always say, the replacements kind of have this reputation as they were sort of, you know, kind of a, a wrecking, wrecking crew, a machine that sort of, you know, dis- destroyed and devoured everything in their wake. But really, at the end of the day, if they hurt people, it was probably more they hurt themselves. You know, there was a, certainly an element of self-sabotage in their career and in their personal lives. Um, but, but they were, you know, they're actually, and I have to credit them throughout a, you know, five, six-year process that, you know, it seemed like maybe the book would never end or ever come out. They rode with it and they were there and, and willing to sort of give me what I needed along the way. And, and we're, you know, we're OK when it came out and it was a tough, a tough book. But I think it benefits that. I mean, they were a kind of a no BS band and no BS people. Uh, and so there was no reason why the book should be anything different.
0: Did it connect with their fans? Because I know they have very, very loyal fans. And of oh, course, yeah. I think their fans really understand the band from those highs and lows. And so sure. did the book really connect with those fans. I think, you know,
1: There's I was very fortunate. The book was a New York Times bestseller right when it came out. It's got a lot of, you know, it was an NPR book of the year, Amazon book of the year. I won a couple of awards for it. So, you know, it's done well in terms of recognition from the industry and other critics. From fans, it's been mostly positive. Uh, I think some people were a little shocked because, you know, they have a certain idea. You tend to romanticize bands and you know, I've come to know people and their relationship with bands are a deeply personal thing. Uh, and they take that, you know, fans take that relationship. You know, Fan is short for fanatic. So there's there's a lot there in that in that relationship with a band that, you know, obviously people you don't know, but just through that music and through the years of supporting them. And so I think some people were a little maybe put off or thrown initially. But I think ultimately, you know, the best comments I get about the book from fans are is like, I didn't know all this stuff and it really threw me for a loop. But in a way, it actually makes me appreciate the music more, because I think when you know the story, when you know the struggle behind it, when you know how fragile and tenuous the, that band was, the fact that they lasted 12 years, made eight albums and created this incredible legacy of, of, of music and art and and fandom. Uh, I think it's, it's even more remarkable. So my hope is that people will listen after they read the book, once the initial shock wears off of <laughs> about certain things, that they'll actually be able to hear and appreciate the music in a different and, and, and more intense way. Uh, and that they'll, they'll come away knowing more about their favorite band. And, and even if some of that, sometimes that truth can be a, a you know, difficult to, to kind of think about when you're, beliefs or thoughts about them were one thing. I think in the end, you know, um, I I always look at it as like, I, my favorite bands, I wish they had a book this kind of thorough and definitive about them. And so if I've done that for, for the replacements, I've done my job.
0: At this point, after writing a book about them, you're sort of a de facto archivist. And let's talk Dead Man's Pop, because you wrote the liner notes for that. You won a Grammy just recently for that. How exciting. Right. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. How did that
0: come about?
1: Um, well, it was kind of, again, an outgrowth of the book. I had researched the band for so long, and in doing so, I had been given access to their archives at Twin Tone Records and ultimately at Warner Brothers Records. So I had done kind of the first sort of serious stock taking of their recorded archive, you know, what was there, what had come out, what hadn't. And in building my relationship with the band and researching the book and kind of being involved with them, I proposed, uh, you know, and in the midst of this, I should say that the band reunited from 2013 to 2015 and did the festival circuit headline shows. It was, you know, a tremendous success. and um, And so, they eventually sort of stopped in 2015 and then shortly after my book came out. But somewhere in that process, I had suggested to the band, their management, and to their record company, Warner Brothers, "Hey, there's a lot of stuff here uh, in the archive. Even though the replacements had been, they'd been a one or two reissues or one reissue campaign and a couple of best of collections, they really had been sort of uh, their catalog had hadn't been sort of." Uh, you know, stripped mind or, or really explored thoroughly. So I thought there was a lot there that you know fans would love, that I would love as a fan, that could be heard. You know, whether it was concert, live concert recordings that hadn't been heard, or um, studio stuff that hadn't been heard. So I proposed uh, back around 2015, 2016, as the book was coming out, a kind of uh, overall big picture. Uh, kind of program, reissue campaign that you could do with some of this archival stuff, this unheard music. And so we launched it in 2017 with a project called Live at Maxwell's 1986, which was a multi-track professional recording of the original version of the band with Bob Stinson that had just been in the vaults for 30 years. And it was a fantastic, uh, fantastic performance. And for a band that Whose reputation really uh, rested so heavily on their their live performances and their concerts to not have an official live album? I thought you know that's the first thing we need to address. Um, so we put that out. I produced it. I wrote the liner notes for it. And it was fortunately a, a really great success. It actually turned out to be the highest charting replacements record of their career. Um, sold, you know, really well for a, for a reissue of that kind. And so it allowed us in 2019 to get even more ambitious and undertake a project called Dead Man's Pop that you mentioned. Um, what that was, was a kind of, um, uh, a, a box set that looked at the totality of the sessions surrounding their 1989 album don't tell a soul which don't tell a soul is actually their most successful album was their biggest seller at had i'll be you which was their biggest hit but in a weird way it's kind of their most maligned or most divisive album you know at least as far as uh, as as time went on it became considered that part of that was because uh the band recorded the album with a guy named matt wallace who produced it but the mix was handed off to a kind of more professional radio uh, mixer type guy and i think in doing so they were trying to at, after ten years as a band, try and have a hit, try and sort of get that success. You know, it's very hard to be a band for ten years without any kind of real tangible commercial success. And so, it was their attempt to say, "Okay, well, we'll try this, and we'll try a professional mixer, we'll try and get on the radio." It worked to an extent, as I say, it was their most successful album, but it didn't really go gold, didn't really break them, and ultimately, it kind of that the failure of them breaking at that point kind of led to them breaking up essentially on the next album. They released one more record, which was sort of half a band record, half a solo album for Paul. But our thinking was, well, there is a really amazing um, album here uh, that the band had recorded, but never quite came to fruition back in 1989. And so we gave uh, Matt Wallace the opportunity to not remix the record, but really finish mixing the record, a job he had started back in 1988, actually. And so that would be the kind of core of the record, a newly mixed record version of Don't Tell a Soul as the band had intended, which we call Don't Tell a Soul Redux. So we put all that together in one package, the remixed album, the the unreleased sessions and the live record. And 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 it became Dead Man's Pop, which, again, was a very successful, you know, critically and commercially project for them. And in doing so, I wrote the liner notes for that as well, or a couple of essays. And uh, the main essay was nominated for a Grammy uh, uh, this past year. And, uh, and I won, much to my surprise, just a few weeks ago, <laughs> uh, won the Grammy. And so technically it's an award for me, but... Uh, but you know the replacement's name is still on it, so I'm I'm very proud and happy to have gotten the replacements a little bit of Grammy gold, uh, even if it's kind of by proxy.
0: Well, we're not surprised over here at Diddy that you won <laughs> the Grammy, but um, a couple questions around Dead sure. Man's Pop. So the um, Don't Tell a Soul. What what was the sound that they didn't like back in 1989, and how does the new version differ?
1: Right. Well, you know it's funny, and, and it's a it's a good lesson in for people who sort of uh, might take the mixing process for granted, how much that can affect uh, uh, what an album sounds like. Basically they had made a, uh, a bolder, more adventurous, more sonically uh, ambitious replacements record. I think they were at a point, you know, after seven, eight years and seven, eight albums where they were kind of, becoming more comfortable with the recording process and working in the studio, you know, mostly their records have been kind of turned out pretty quickly and, and being sort of impatient people, they didn't really have a a lot of patience for the recording process. But I think this is the first time that they were really kind of hunkering down and wanting to make a record that kind of uh, really sort of took full advantage of the studio and the process, the, the studio process. And so they made this great record with Matt and I think in the process of handing it off to uh, Chris Lord Algie, who mixed it, who was a wonderful and very successful engineer and, and, and mixing engineer, he was tasked with getting the band on the radio. And so he made a record that sounded very much like what radio sounded in 1988, 1989. And he had a sort of set methodology in terms of how he mixed records and how he made things sound. Um, and he also in the process made some different choices. You know, that's the power of mixing is, you know, you're you, not only are you sort of changing the sound of the record, but you're also kind of serving as a de facto editor because you can take away things, put things so, so far in the mix that it sort of changes the actual intention and dynamics of a record. And I think that's what happened. And although he did his job, the job he was tasked with and what he was paid for and it was successful on its own merits. I think the band ultimately wanted a band, uh, wanted an album that sounded less like, you know, It was fixed in the sort of radio aesthetics of 1988, 89 and more a record that was timeless, a record that would be kind of forever and a record that sounded more like them. And I think that's why a lot of fans over the years um, really felt like that record wasn't representative or was a strange departure. And that had more to do with the mix than anything the replacements were doing or that they did. And I think with allowing Matt Wallace to mix the record as, you know, he had intended and the band had intended it's a, it, you know, sometimes these remix or unmixing projects are, are pretty m- minimal in terms of the difference it makes or the reinvention is pretty subtle. But I think in this case, it's pretty radical and you're hearing, um, much more of a replacements record and much more of a record that is a logical successor to their previous album, Please to Meet Me, which they also recorded in Memphis with Jim Dickinson. And so it really restores the album and kind of gives it its reputation back. But also I think. Uh, opens people's eyes and ears to the fact that, yeah, this was a little bit of a different boulder replacements record, but still very much a replacements record. And some of that is just, you know, little things of like chorus on the guitars or reverb or compression or the way he was sort of panning the stereo. I think with Matt, you feel with Matt's mix, you feel much more like you're in the room with the band that uh the the energy and the vitality and the humor and the looseness and the and the and the rough edges that had been sort of sanded off or glossed over in the original mix are present there. And, you know, for the replacements, Paul Westerberg always says that, you know, rock and roll is about mistakes and turning mistakes to your advantage. And I think when you sort of, when you try to shine on the replacements, you lose the essence of who and what they are. And I think that's what the original Don't Tell a Soul mix did. And in going back and giving Matt and the band their opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, re- re- rewrite history in a sense, uh, you're also getting a chance to really hear the record and, and it kind of, For me, it puts it back, uh, you know, it's the definitive version now, and it's the truer version to their intention and to what was going on to the music, essentially. And I think that's the most important thing. So I'm very proud of the fact that we've been able to get that out into the world. And it was something that I think the band and Paul in particular wanted to do for a long time. But, um, you know, until we had the success with the first reissue project with Live at Maxwell's. You know, it didn't really make sense to, you know, there wasn't the opportunity to do that. But now, you know, with the success of Maxwell, we were able to do it. And, and you know, having been recognized with a lot of critical praise now, Grammy, it's sort of uh, it's a good feeling.
0: I bet it is. So on the incarcerated part, the live portion of this, when they toured following this album, mm-hmm. did they tour with a more raw edge to the songs or did they tour oh. with the same sound as was in the studio?
1: No, it, it's, and that's one of the things. If you hear there was the incarcerated, it came out as a, a five-song promotional EP. And, of course, this version that's on the box set is the whole 30-song album, uh, 30-song performance. And, you know, you can even hear in their live versions at the time uh, that it, there was a different version or a different aesthetic uh, approach to these songs than what was heard on the finished mixed album. So I think there was always a suspicion among Replacements fans that, you know, something funny had happened in that Which you know it happens with a lot of bands, and it particularly happened with a lot of bands in that era, in the kind of big eighties era, where it was the dawn of digital recording. There was a there was a very defined sort of approach to how records were supposed to sound uh, if they were to be commercially successful. And I think you know a lot of people made a lot of great records in the eighties with that approach. But I think you know the replacements weren't that kind of band. Uh, and you could hear it even then on the on the live records or the live recordings. And so that's also kind of a cool thing you're hearing, you know, again, as I say, for a band that really didn't spend much time previously or really like the studio environment, this is the first time they really were in it. And to hear the evolutions of the song from the very early Bearsville recordings that got scrapped uh, to Matt Wallace's now, you know, finished the album, then to the hearing them taking it out on the road as a, as a live performance, you really hear just how creative and how subtle and cool like, you know, they were as artists. You know, one of the things I always try and stress with the replacements and, you know, I tried to do it in the book is so much of what people know or think about uh, the replacements has to do with kind of their reputation, their myth and their romance around them. You know, they're these kind of drunken rebels, you know, who wouldn't play the game and bit the hand that fed them and all that stuff And, and, and were wild, you know, on stage and everything that goes with that. But I think what sometimes gets lost in, in, in that kind of thinking is just how, um, Amazing a band they were and how wonderful they were as musician and creative and talented. And you can hear that in the evolution of a band that starts out in 1980, 81 with a with their debut album, Sorry Moth forgot to take out the trash, which is a full-on, you know, pop punk record. And they even get further into like hardcore. And then they have this middle period where they're making these really classic rock and roll records that sort of fit with, you know, the best of the Rolling Stones or the Kinks or whoever. And then by the end, they're they're doing this kind of big pop stuff, or the last album is a singer-songwriter almost like an alternative country, early sort of roots Americana thing, to see a band uh, go through that kind of musical evolution in, in the space of a decade, I think is really an amazing thing to see and very rare, even at that time. And so I think their artistry sometimes gets overlooked. And what we've tried to do with this series of reissues is, is put the focus back on their artistry and also to, to sort of take a different view of, of, of records like Please to Meet Me, which we also did an expanded version just this past year. Um, and just really, you know, kind of shine a light on the fact that these guys, in addition to being great performers, great showmen, great rebels, great, you know, rock and rollers, they were also great musicians and great artists and great songwriters.
0: One last question: So, sure. where were these Bearsville sessions, and how does that how do how does hearing them kind of demonstrate the continuity between how they created the songs?
1: Well, that's very interesting. So initially they started making this album with Tony Berg's very successful producer, ended up working with Michael Penn. He's works with Phoebe Bridgers now, really great guy, uh, but still who was very young at that point. And I think uh you know, there was a kind of clash between them in the studio. They were working. Also, they happened to be, they sent the replacements up to Bearsville, New York, near Woodstock, which is a very rural bucolic area. They were sort of staying almost like it was like staying in a summer camp in cabins on the property where the studio was. And the replacements are very much city boys, and they did not take well to the country. Um, so the session sort of devolved in part as a result of that, in part because of kind of a disconnection with Tony. But they really did some amazing work up there. And I think in a way, it was the first time they'd ever really done any. Anything resembling pre production on an album. And you can hear in those versions, the songs still starting to take shape, starting to evolve. But you hear Tony's influence on helping shape those songs so that by the time they went and worked with Matt Wallace, who really ended up doing the album proper, uh, they were ready and raring to go in a way that I don't think um, they had been previously. Again, it's all part of their evolution as studio musicians, as as, as record makers. And so I think Bearsville is kind of key both to the story, you know, as you hear it on the box set, you hear the songs starting and kind of taking shape and also some versions that are, you know, not repeated and songs that are not repeated. So it's a really interesting look at uh, the creative process of a band that very rarely allowed anyone, uh, you know, a look into their creative process and sometimes didn't have a creative process. I think with Westerberg so and the band in general, so much is, a, is about spontaneity, about capturing the moment, about sort of live recording and live feeling. I mean, he's a guy who, even if he's written a song, he'll, and, and written it three times, he'll still change up the lyrics and improvise in the studio in the moment. But I think with this album um, and this period, he's getting more into the refinement of his work and his art. And Bearsville is key because you hear that process uh, that ends up really taking full flight on the Matt Wallace sessions and, and even further refinement, you know, as they're performing the songs live on and concert.
0: Well, this is an iconic box set. It's for every fan, it's amazing, but for people who aren't fans, I think they'll become fans by through this box set. Um, Bob, it was great to have you. Congratulations again on your Grammy, and uh, don't be a stranger.
1: <laughs> I won't be. Once once all this, uh, all this COVID stuff is over, I'll be back in your studio before too long and looking forward to hearing some live music. So thanks again for having
0: me. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Bob Mayer. Don't forget to visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and to download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Thank you very much and see you soon.
2: It's NFL draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.